She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Kolchek the Night Stalker. Episode 18. The Nightly Murders. In this episode, when the decision is made to turn a failing museum into a disco and restaurant, the haunted armor of a very unsociable knight who dabbled in black magic begins killing people to assure his resting place remains undisturbed. As it turns out, only two things can stop the ambulatory and murderous armor, a battle axe blessed by the Pope and Kolchak. The teleplay was by Michael Kozel and David Chase. The story is by Paul Magistretti, and the episode was directed by Vincent McVitie. Its original air date was Friday, March 7th, 1975 at 8 p.m. And as you recall, the last episode aired on Valentine's Day, so there were two weeks. But no, couldn't find it. It's just blank. When you look, they just don't even put anything in those dates. So there are some dates when they don't even list the channel at all on that <laughs> day. So I'm like, okay, whatever, dudes. So, yeah, I'm sure if I could find some old TV guides, I would get an idea of what aired, but I have no idea. Yeah. So, so it might have been reruns. We don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know if they did reruns of Kolchak during its run or not. Yeah. So, I don't know. No idea. So, we get our opening sequence and we get Kolchak narration. So, Tuesday, 11 15 p.m. If you know anything about Chicago politics, you'll understand why a 63 year old ward captain was braving the ungentle hour and less gentle streets. You see, Ward Captain Leo J. Ramutka was returning home from a wake in Oswiedersheim to a local registered voter he knew one day would meet him in that great polling station in the sky. What Ward Captain Ramutka failed to foresee was just how soon that meeting would be. <gasps> Whoa. So we see Ramuka driving home and he pulls up to a very nice house and he goes in and inside he closes the door behind him and then he turns around and then we get his point of view and there's this suit of armor and Ramuka's like, no, no. And then we see this crossbow with what looks like a rocket launcher missile on it and the missile <laughs> launches and we hear this thunk as the screen goes to black. Yeah. Short and sweet, this opening sequence. Boom, commercial time. Two minutes and five seconds into the show. Yeah. Man, not messing around. Apparently, the knight was rooting around Hawkeye's arrow quiver, and that's where he got this crazy arrow. Yeah, which turns that out actually missile. is a thing, but it looks, and you're like, what the heck is that? Yeah. Because it literally looks like something you would put in a rocket launcher and fire at a helicopter. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, so, it's pretty yeah. wild. Medieval war, man, it was not pretty. Not that any war is pretty. Let's not even go there. Yeah. So we come back, we get the night view of Chicago from the lake, and we see the cityscape with all the lights, and then we see the scene that we've seen many times of, like, Coltrick driving in the night. And over the police scanner, we hear a call, and there's an address. And then we get voiceover. Wednesday, 11.42 p.m., 11.13 Petrosky. It wasn't a celebrated address, the sort one gets excited over or stores in their mental trousseau. But the name on the radio was Captain Vernon W. Roche. To a reporter, he was the Edward R. Murrow of Homicide. His list of credits reached back into the mid-50s and the infamous Mercer Dobrance murders. He was a good cop, allegedly great. So what do you say to a living legend? So Kolchak and the police photographer are like taking pictures of this 
bloody hole in the door and there's like a chalk outline like drawn on the door because i guess the dude got like pinned to the door i guess anyway and there's like cops measuring it and everything and then we see raw she's like coming down this flight of stairs like he's like some nobleman coming down the staircase of his estate very aristocratic and then Colchick goes over and approaches Rosh and says hi there which is time to match the end of his little voiceover he says what do you say to a living legend and so then he's like hi there and in my original skeleton notes where I just like tag each scene and like who the key players are before I go through and flesh them out Rosh had the code name of Captain McEyebrows so, <laughs> yeah that's so, a know. good one I can see that yeah so Colchick introduces himself to Rosh and Rosh greets him and there's a gurney that's covered and it's wheeled past. And Kolchak asks who that is. And Rosh tells him that's Leo Ramutka. He was ward captain, 44th. And then Kolchak sees the murder missile and it's on the table. And in a very Mulder move, Kolchak just kind of grabs it with his bare hands. And he tips it upward and he places his finger on the tip, which is probably very sharp. And Rosh orates about its crude nature, but its effectiveness. Well, Kolchak snaps some photos of it. And despite its century-old origin, it was used by British commandos in World War II due to its silence and deadliness. So Kolchak asks if they believe someone who thinks they're a British commando is responsible for this murder. And Rosh says no. But Kolchak says Rosh does believe he knows who did it. And Rosh says yes. Then no. And then Rosh begins kind of monologuing. And Kolchak asks him to begin again. (laughs) and he puts his recorder under him so that he can like you know start over and get the whole thing on tape and rosh is happy to do so so he just you know recorder clicks on he starts going and partway through kolchak gets that look because like he's just kind of going on but it doesn't really make any sense so he kind of is like you know what this isn't useful and he starts to kind of like lower the recorder but rosh is just like He's on a roll and he's going. So he kind of <laughs> lifts the quarter back up to his mouth and keeps talking. Yeah. yeah he grabs it. It's all like, brings yeah, it he's like, I'm not done, buddy. I'm not done. You wanted a statement. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. And this was obviously the same night um, in the opening. We get Tuesday, 11, 15 PM. And then we get Wednesday, 11, 42 PM. It was either Tuesday or Wednesday. We don't really, but it's not a day later. It's the same night. It's just like, you know, half an hour later. So I'm not sure. Again. Like, man, that's mm, anyway, script editor. Come on, guy. So. <laughs> so then we see some guy in a ballet cap and Kolchak's voice kicks in. And the next night, actually the next night, 1020 p.m. If Leo Ramutka's popularity or lack of it was born of ballots and political patronage, Rolf Danvers got his more directly. His was the lure of ready cash and the deeds to several square blocks of prime Chicago real estate. However, within seconds, the only real estate that would matter to Rolf Dandridge would be a small plot he owned in Memorial Park near Old Town. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So we see Danvers drive in. He's the dude in the ballet cap. And again, pulls in the driveway of a super nice looking house. I mean, he's a real estate dude, so obviously he's going to have a nice house, right? And then through his point of view, through his windshield... We see this black suit of armor in the driveway, like standing there and it's holding a lance, almost like it's jousting, but it's not on a horse. Mm-hmm. And then Danzver like drives right into it and impales himself. Screams, yeah. Ah! Can't stop. Apparently. Yeah. Can't stop. Won't stop. Boom. Impaled. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's what the phrase means. Really? Well, it, it works. 
but yeah no he can't he can't stop the car so he unfortunately drives right into the lance which not good i'm just i'm just i'm just, I'm just claiming that as to mean what i want it to mean there we go that's i mean how it works that's what phrases are for right that's right you bring your own meaning to it and then people look at you and go like uh, that doesn't mean what you think it means so yeah anyway <laughs> <laughs> so I just pictured like Tobias from Arrested Development and then being like, you should really hear yourself. <laughs> you do hear what you're saying. Anyway. Okay. That's a totally different thing. <laughs> so in the police headquarters hallway, there's a crowd of reporters and they're following Rosh as he answers questions and he denies any link at this time regarding the two murders. So he doesn't think they're connected. And Kolchak, instead of asking his question directly, he kind of like lingers at the back of the crowd and he leans into the ear of this other reporter and he tells her that there's this rumor going around the press room. And so Roush says, okay, I'll answer one more question. And of course the reporters swarm around him. Meanwhile, Kolchak ducks into Roush's office, but the reporter Kolchak was talking to gets to ask the final question. And she says, it's been rumored among the press that you're combing the 14th precinct looking for a woman disguising herself as a British commando. And all of the reporters <laughs> go wild and they want to know like the answer to this question. So <laughs> Ross just kind of stands there. He's like, huh? So yeah, that was a yeah. smart move on Kolchak's part, <laughs> getting someone else to ask the tough questions. Yeah. And also distract him while he sneaks into the office. <laughs> So inside Roush's office, Kolchak's sitting in the chair opposite Roush's desk, and we hear Roush dismiss the reporters, and then he enters. And he greets Kolchak, calls him Carl, pats him on the shoulder, and he pats him so hard that Kolchak almost collapses. So he's a strong guy. Yeah. He's tall, too. He's, he's, he's yeah. a big dude. Yeah. Kind of lends to that nobility air he's got going on thing. So. so they talk, and Kolchak finds out that Danvers was stabbed by something round and sharp with the structural similarity to an ice pick. However, there's a disconcerting wrinkle to that premise. Said ice pick would need to have a three-inch diameter. So that's a big freaking ice pick. Yeah. And Kolchak is like, well, that's not an ice pick. And Roush has been like kind of perusing a book while they were talking. So he snaps the book shut. And he says he buys that. And he respects Kolchak for saying it. But then he just kind of stares off into space. So. <laughs> yeah. And so after getting Roush's attention again and getting another weird answer, because his answers are all very like long winded and a lot of times don't have a lot of information, but um, he says like, you know, how society killed Danvers and he zones back out again. And Kolchak says two men are dead, one by an oversized arrow and another by an obese ice pick. And he believes the two murders are related if for no other reason than Roush is handling both cases. And Roush kind of snaps back. And he says, that last one is an excellent point. Excellent. Yeah. So he's feeling like all super lucid again. Yeah. So he's kind of like fading in and out of like attention or. Yeah. He's kind of like, he's very distractible. It seems like he's kind yeah. of like off in his own head and then kind of snaps mm -hmm. back and is like, mm, okay. And Ralph says there were one seventh as many ice pick killings last year as there were in 1942. And Kolchak's like 1942. And, you know, it's like, well, technology, ice cubes are ready made these days, so you don't need an ice pick. And Kolchak's like, so, like, is he talking about women who are, like, getting cranky and stabbing people with ice picks? I don't know. I just picture an old lady with an ice pick, like, stabbing her husband because he won't stop, like, 
drinking yeah, or just milk people, or just people had carton. ice picks so you know yeah more, everyone had them right because you had to, yeah they were more you know. i just for some reason i picture like an old woman like oh. stop sticking your hand in the pickle jar i don't know anyway <laughs> now i'm the one getting distracted <laughs> what how's that misogynist an old women are the killers well sometimes that's empowering anyway. okay <laughs> evil old women who have no use in society or their murders yes i did not say that they had no use in society <laughs> i said they were fed up with their husbands drinking milk straight out of the carton and okay. probably not contributing to the household and so they're stabbing them with the ice all right it's better than arsenic poisoning right so anyway Kolchak's like, so, so were there ice cubes in both murders? And Rush is like, no, no, no. And Kolchak is like, he's like, we need to discuss things less directly. And Kolchak kind of to himself, he looks at his notebook and he's like, less directly. Like, you know, he's not not getting a lot of <laughs> this conversation. Yeah, I started to, and I think this is probably more of a modern lens. I don't think they really did this kind of thing back then. But I was kind of getting the feeling that maybe Rush was starting to like decline in his mental faculties and start maybe having some like early onset dementia or something possibly going on. I guess more of a modern thing that would happen. We're going to get an answer. That's not that later, but that's what I was kind of getting from this episode. It was like, he's like coming in and out of like attention and just like lost in his thoughts. And yeah. I just thought he was supposed of, to be kind of distractible and not really focused, yeah. you know, cause they have different personality types for these police captains that Kolchak has to spar with. And this one just happens to be, off in his own world yeah he is definitely more willing to talk to the press though yes yeah and we sure. will kind of find out why also later so yeah anyway not to just blow it all and spoiler everything outside a pawn shop that features a stuffed komodo dragon again sorry mr eddie listen to last episode if you know what i'm talking about coltech pulls up and enters the shop and we get narration thursday 212 Extricating myself from Captain Vernon W. Roush cost me two hours of precious time, wherein I learned that the only thing more maddening than certain cops were certain educated cops. I was in the mood for some fast, straight answers, so I headed for the straight arrow himself, Pop Stenvold. So, Kolchak and Pop, they do some verbal back and forth in the scene, and they obviously have a history, and some of the stuff they say actually makes no sense, because like we don't understand some of that history. But Kolchak does find out that the arrow is from a crossbow, Middle Ages. Pop says he couldn't sell something like that here if he tried. People just want guns and elevator shoes and karate lessons. I don't even buy karate lessons at a pawn shop. But anyway, but Kolchak's like, well, what if I want a crossbow? And Pop's like, you don't. To cock a crossbow like that would take a winch. 300 pounds of pressure at least. Because Kolchak has shown him the picture of the the thing, right? So that's why he knows where it's from. I kind of left that part out of the summary. So Kolchak persists. And so Pop gives him directions to where to get one. He tells him to hop in your car and drive until you reach the 14th century. And then you can ask a social worker. And so I kind of thought he meant that he would be crazy. But Pop was talking about how the social worker tells him he needs to have his teeth fixed and he doesn't have money for it. So Kolchak assumes he wants money, but then he tells Kolchak he doesn't want money. But what he does want is to continue their work on his autobiography. So then we get a clue about some of the stuff they were talking about earlier that made no sense because apparently Kolchek pays Pop for info by letting Pop dictate his autobiography into his recorder. Yeah. Kolchek's got himself a couple of talkers this episode. So so then we get Kolchek's voiceover Thursday, 11.59 p.m. 
There was a saying amongst the hollow databanks of industry that when Brewster Hawking slept, so did KALC, an acronym for the Canadian American Leisure Corporation. In 12 short years, CALC, C-A-L-C, and Hawking had risen from a humble catering truck company to the world's 14th fastest rising conglomerate, digesting a plethora of diverse industries from whiskey distilleries in Scotland to that nationally famous analgesic for the morning after. And yes, in like two consecutive sentences, Kolchek spells calc two different ways, one with a K, despite mm. it supposedly standing for Canadian, and then immediately after that with a C. So, yeah, whew, man, I could have left that out. But, you know, as much as I love Kolchek, I also need to say when they mess up because it's only fair. <laughs> so. so then we see Brewster Hawking lying in bed and he's wearing a smoking jacket and his lap is full of reports. And he's taking some of those famous analgesics. And in the outer room, there's a fireplace blazing. So obviously he's also got like a pretty nice house. because He's got like. Well, he owns the 14th fastest rising conglomerate. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Very nice house. But then there's this clanking sound. And so he calls out for Charles and he's like, Charles, stop that clanking noise. You know, it's annoying. And unfortunately, it's not Charles who enters the room. It's a black knight. It could be Charles. Maybe he's wearing armor for some reason. Yeah, could be. But it's so basically someone in a giant suit of armor and they're swinging a morning star flail. And Hawking pleads and he's like, you can take anything you want. And unfortunately, like he, he the, the night does come in kind of early and Brewster just doesn't move from bed, which I mean, I guess at a certain point, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? But it is kind of funny because he just kind of sits there. And it's like, ah, 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 for like kind of a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, he does like, you know, take whatever you want. You can, you know, steal stuff. Yeah. Don't kill me. So. But the knight steps on a phone and crushes it. Mm-hmm. And then he approaches and he's still got the thing swinging around. And we hear another thunk and Hawking's cries get silent. <gasps> So we can assume that uh, probably not not good for him. And probably not Charles in the armor. Or maybe. Pro- we don't know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know who Charles is at this point. His assistant, so, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But it could have been his partner. We don't know. Yeah. Could have been. Yeah. And then we go to commercial. Yep. And then we see a sign that reads Heidecker Museum. And inside, a very loud woman, who's also wearing a very loud outfit, is mm-hmm. trying to pull a blue coat of arms shield from the wall. And there's an elderly white haired gentleman and he's like protesting. He's like, don't pull that down. And he's like, you're mixing centuries and you're destroying continuity and making it all awful. Yeah. And which I immediately love this guy because continuity is priority. Can't mess with continuity. <laughs> so. so she does like that rhyming mockery thing. And she's like, this thing is blue. That thing's black. I will not tolerate a black and blue cocktail lounge. Unless someone has decided to rename the Camelot bar, the Brews room. And they kind of glare at each other. So clearly they've been having a yeah. standoff about how yeah. to decorate. If this was bar. like a cartoon, they would have like the little lightning bolts that go between their eyes. <laughs> Zapping each yeah. other. So, yeah. So Kolchak arrives and rings the bell. And the man, who will learn is Mr. Boggs, answers and barks at Kolchak thinking he's part of the pre-publicity troupe. And Kolchak is like, no, no, I just want to ask a question about some arrows. And so Bog softens because he's not part of this horrible thing that they're doing to his museum. And he lets Kolchak in. And the woman tells Boggs that her audio crew will be there later. And he better let them in this time. 
and he protests and she's basically like sucks for you and heads out <laughs> the door saying she has to go talk to whoever handles firing the custodial staff and Boggs is like my title is curator and she's like whatever Boggsy and she leaves so yeah they're getting along real swell yeah she calls him Boggsy though so you know I doubt it's affectionate she probably just does it she knows it drives him insane so probably yeah and Kolchak's like well what was that all about and Boggs says the woman is Minerva Musso and she's an interior decorator of ill repute the museum is being turned into a discotheque by some soda company, which means the end of Boggs' job unless he becomes a bartender or learns to operate a strobe light. But Boggs says one must have faith. They all did. And Kolchak's like, they? And he kind of like gestures around. He's like, the knights of yore. Yeah, and he like does some poetry stuff. And Kolchak's like, oh, that's very good. Yeah, so, yeah, so Boggs is definitely a man who loves the olden times. Yeah. Yeah. So he talks to Boggs for a while. He shows him the photo and he does learn that crossbow arrows are actually called bolts, right? I knew that, but they call them arrows. So I'm going to keep it accurate, right? We'll learn it later. So bolts, but Boggs can't really give me a better information on the bolt because Kolchak's photograph is like awful. It's not properly focused. He's like holding it, trying to look at it. It's also got a huge, awful, awful shadow in it. Like you almost can't tell what it is at first because it's a black and white photo and like the missile itself is, or the bolt itself is black. And then there's this huge shadow on it, which makes it look like it's some weird anvil almost. It's kind of weird, but so can't blame Boggs on that. Kolchak doesn't, we know Kolchak doesn't take good photos. Everyone complains about Kolchak's photos. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, but he does say it has vague medieval stylings and then it's probably just a replica and like throws it away. He's like, I'm busy. I got stuff to do. So then Kolchak, as Boggs is putting the coat of armor back on the wall that Musso took down, Kolchak's like looking at this empty quiver that doesn't have any bolts in it. And he gets in trouble for touching it. And he asks what happened to them. And Boggs tells him, it's like, oh, attrition, probably snotty little kid stole him or something like that. And then Boggs is like, I don't have any more time for you. And you have to go. And so Boggs walks off. And then Kolchak starts looking at the black suit of armor that's there. And he's touching it and raises up the visor. And then from off screen, Boggs just totally like screams at him. <laughs> I told you not to touch anything. So and then Kolchak yeah, and then out. The armor head like falls off. And it just like crashes. And he's like, ah, and like walks away. It's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. So then at the morgue, Kolchak bribes the attendant. And it's some young dude named Lester. And he wants to see the photos of Brewster Hawking's body. And Kolchak looks at the photos and he asks what hit him. And Lester says, that's the $64 question. Even big medical minds want to know. So they haven't figured it out. He thinks someone stomped on him with a thousand pound football shoe. And Kolchak's like, yeah, or a mace. And Lester's like, mace comes in a little can. It doesn't weigh anything. And Kolchak rolls his eyes and he's like, no, M-A-C-E. And he describes like the, you know, spiky kind of ball with the chain at the end that you swing around. And Lester just kind of smiles at him and like has no idea what he's talking about. So Kolchak leaves. Yeah. So one, we don't actually get any months in this episode. I don't think we actually get any dates either. We just get times. But according to the wall calendar, when Kolchak comes in, it's May 15th. So we don't know. Mm-hmm. May spray is also spelled M-A-C-E. So not, that's, that was weird that Kolchak spelled it. Like that would make a difference because it's spelled the same. Which one you're Yeah, about. I don't know. But Kolchak either incorrectly describes a mace or he incorrectly applies the name mace to what we know was in fact the correct weapon of the spiky ball on the end of a chain right that is what the knight was using which is called a morning star flail as mentioned in the notes so a mace is technically a weighted flanged weapon 
on the end of a stick. A spiked ball on the end of a stick is called a morning star. And then the morning star or Morgenstern is technically actually just the spike ball. So just the spike ball itself technically is a morning star, but we call like the weapon when it's on the end of a stick, a morning star, same idea with the flange. Technically the flange is the mace, but when it's on the end of a stick, we call the whole thing a mace. And then a stick with the chain and the weighted ball or a flange or multiple, sometimes you see them with multiple chains and weights on the end or stuff. It's just called a flail. And so then you put those two together, a spiked ball, a morning star, and a flail, and you get the spiked ball on the end of a chain, which is called a morning star flail. You learn these kind of distinctions when you're a Transformers nerd because the Transformers refers to Megatron's Energon morning star flail as an Energon mace. And all the Will Actually fans will be like, it's actually an Energon morning star, which they're wrong because it's actually a morning star flail. But anyway, so, you know. When you're a nerd, you learn things that maybe you didn't think you would learn. So true. Yep. Yeah. Especially when you're like me and are like, well, you're wrong on top of <laughs> saying they're wrong. So also, and this will come up later too. Medieval weapons are freaking confusing. Yes. Because there yeah. are small variations in their design, even though you basically think like that's an axe, but there are super small variations and then they get entirely different names. But then the names of the parts also are names of other distinct weapons. It's really confusing so but yeah star flail it's on the end of a chain which is what you normally think of i think when people say mace is what they think of i think it's just been like attributed that way so incorrectly for so long that like the general public just assumes that it is so yeah well it's kind of become mace's general parlance right like even though that's not correct that's what people say and that's what they think of so yeah So then Kolchak's driving, and he tells us he heard a brief interview with Charles Johnson, the butler for Brewster Hawking. But it was brief because he basically refused to comment to the press. So rather than face an ugly confrontation, he makes a detour to the telegraph office where an old mercenary friend comes through for him. And so then we see Charles Johnson read a telegraph, and it says, Dear Carl, stop. Please come to Chicago as soon as possible. Stop. Need to talk to you in person. Stop. Fraternally yours, Hawk. And Charles is like, in my 10 years working for Mr. Hawking, he never referred to himself as Hawk. He also doesn't recall ever hearing Kolchak's name. So he's kind of dubious. But Kolchak manages to get in anyway. And really the only real information he gets is that he sees the crushed phone that was mm-hmm. on the floor of Brewster's room, which the knight stepped on. And so the police believe that the killer crushed it to prevent him from calling for help. But there are like two other phones on the table by his bed, completely untouched. So, you know, he could have called on any of the other phones. Yeah. And then we also learned that CALC and thus Hawking own several soda pop companies. Hmm. Soda pop companies. Hmm. So then we have the INS offices and Kolchak is looking through a book on medieval weaponry and a telephone repairman enters the office and Kolchak's like, oh, over here, over here. And he tells him his phone has no dial tone. So the repairman picks it up and is like, yep, no dial tone. And so he's messing with the phone. And then Kolchak's like, you know, while you're here, can I ask you a question? How much pressure would it take to crush a phone? And the repairman is like, you mean destroy telephone company equipment? And Kolchak's like, well, hypothetically, like, unless you don't know, 
yeah, Kolchak being sneaky. <laughs> and their parents like, I know. Company spec says 420 pounds. And the Kolchak's like, PSI. And the repairman's like, PSI. So before we go any further, there's something you need to know if you're not old like me. Back in the 70s, there was like one phone company for like the entire country, basically. And they controlled everything. They could tell you how many phones you could have. Like you could have like nowadays, right? You, you have a phone. I mean, a lot of people don't even have phones in their house anymore. But like, say you have a landline and there's jacks in different rooms. Like you have a jack in your bedroom. You have a jack in the living room. You have a jack in the kitchen. And they're all the same phone number. You get a call. It rings, right? Back in the 70s, if you wanted to have two phones on the same line, you had to get it approved by the phone company. They were mm-hmm. like in like the equipment that you bought was like from them. They owned it. Right. Because he's like telephone. Like everything right. was like the company controlled everything because they couldn't because they were a monopoly. So this will make more sense if you know that. It's also kind of like, you know, when you your router from the Internet company now is like it's their equipment and you kind of rent it and then you return it. Yeah. And very service. similar to Internet because they usually don't have an option. Right. You don't have somewhere else. You right. Can go. Yeah. So this is going to make more sense if you know that like the phone company controlled everything about you having a phone. So then the repairman who's been working on Kolchak's phone is like, this equipment has been tampered with. And Kolchak's just like, what? We've been bugged. You know, and the repairman's <laughs> like, dude, don't try that on me. You're a con man. You tampered with this phone just to get me up here to ask mm-hmm. me a question. And Kolchak's kind of like, what? Yeah, well, have you ever tried calling the business office? Like, they don't answer the phone. So the repairman, is, he's walking out. He's, all, he's like, what do we have here? Unauthorized equipment. And like on Miss Emily's desk, she's got like this fancy, like, you know, like white and gold phone. And so he grabs a cable and like rips it out of the floor and takes her phone. And then there's another phone, like the old time, like 1930 phone, where it's like on a stand. And it's got like the like it's like the tin can kind mm-hmm. of phone. And he rips that one out of the floor, too, and walks off with them. And like he's carrying them out. And then Chenzo comes out of his office. and It's like, what's going on? And the dude's like. Don't worry, it's taking care of it. And he walks out with their phones and the cables are like dangling. And then Chen's like, oh, call Jack. He's like, what's going on? Two of our bootleg telephones just walked out the door. So, you know, they 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 had extra phones in the line that they were using. It was the same number, but it was extra, which is why in previous episodes, when like they're saying, hey, Tony, there's a call for you. And then Kolchak like doesn't hang up and can listen because it's the same phone number, right? It's just whoever picks up the phone. So, but mm-hmm. yeah, you weren't allowed to have extra phones if they didn't want you to have extra phones, which is crazy. We probably had to pay for each phone, right? So like if you weren't paying for each phone. Yeah. Well, I mean, they obviously, <laughs> well, you could buy them, but you still had to get like, apparently you had to get approval to have it. So also they may have maybe like wired their own jack possibly. I don't know. That was a thing you could do too. That you weren't allowed, yeah. to, you weren't allowed to do because most houses had like one, like, it was like in the living room back in the day. And then you would have to call the phone company to put a line in for like mm-hmm. your bedroom or for, you know. When I was a kid and I got my own phone line in my bedroom, they had to come install it in my bedroom. Yeah. And then I could have my own phone and it had my own number. And it was very, very exciting. Oh, well, see, you had your own number, though. That was a different thing, though. Yeah, but it was yeah. still, they had to come install it because there was only one yeah. phone line. Yeah, but that was different because it was a whole separate number. Whereas we're mm-hmm. talking like even the same number, you had to yeah. get like approval for them to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also that weird thing called party line if anyone talks about where you shared a phone line with like other houses and you could like pick up the phone and listen to people talk like oh that's neighbors. weird yeah we didn't have that yeah my grandma had that when i was a kid it was freaky so you could be talking on the phone and then someone would pick up and you'd be like and they'd be like oh sorry or you could just like randomly <laughs> pick up the phone to make a call and then couldn't make a call because someone else was talking and if they didn't want to get off the phone then you can make a call so it was yeah weird weird 
Yeah. So Kolchak is putting his phone back together and he tells Tony not to worry about it because now he knows that it takes 420 pounds of pressure, PSI, to crush a telephone. And that according to his book, a medieval knight in full armor with full weaponry weighed well over 400 pounds. And so Vigenza was relieved to know that a medieval knight could crush a telephone. So a little sarcasm there. And Kolchak says, like, not even like catching on the Vincenzo's being sarcastic. Kolchak's like, he believes there have been three murders committed using medieval weaponry and that maybe the person has been wearing medieval armor. He's like, I'm not sure. And as he's talking, you can just like just see the agony on Vincenzo's face. Mm-hmm. He's, just like, oh. he's like, oh, what now, Kolchak? Really? Knights in armor? Come on. Yeah. So Kolchak says he knows of a place full of armor and weapons that is run by a very angry man and that Brewster Hawking ran a company that owned several soda pop companies and recently acquired Heidecker Wine Importers and Heidecker Museum. Mm-hmm. Vincenzo, of course, has no idea what Kolchak is talking about. And Kolchak tells him not to worry. It will all be explaining his story once he talks to Minerva Musso. And Ron, who's in the office, is like, Minerva Musso, the decorator? Mm-hmm. You? Like, you're going to be able to talk to her? Because, you know, Ron, Ron's in on that, all that kind of stuff, right? Oh, yeah. He's in the yeah. fashion scene and the. Yeah, yeah he's he in the fashion him. scene, the financial scene, and mm-hmm. he was doing sports for a while, too. All remember? the fancy people stuff. <laughs> yeah, high society. Yeah, he's yeah, the society. High society, dude. I guess, is what you would call it. Yeah, yes. he is the society dude. Mm-hmm. And Kolchak's like, yes, we're going to redesign the office. And then he points at Ron and says, you're going to be replaced by a Boston fern, and Vincenzo will be replaced by a Snapdragon. And then he walks out. And Vincenzo is just like, I don't <laughs> even know what is going on around here. Ever. Honestly, though, it's a good impression of her. I like it. I think it's funny. It's like, it's a pretty good scene. Like, I don't know. It's good. Yes. <laughs> so Kolchak exits this fancy wood paneled elevator on the 29th floor. And he tells us that it's Friday, 8.58 p.m. When you're hot, you're hot. And as soon as he saw a mass of seemingly unrelated facts starting to come together, he knew he was at least getting more. So Kolchak walks down a dimly lit hallway looking for the right door and he hears a woman laughing. So he follows the sound to a door, you know, that he was looking for and he starts to knock, but his first tap just causes the door to open because no one locks their doors. I do not understand. <laughs> or even closes them properly, apparently. I mean, as someone who will get up at three in the morning to make sure I lock my door, even though I checked it before I went to bed, I mean, that is my OCD. But at the same time, like I just, it does not, it boggles my brain that people would just leave their doors open in any way. But anyway, mm-hmm. she does. So he enters and he says hello, but he gets no reply. And it does sound like someone's having this really animated conversation. So he continues to follow the sound to Minerva Musso's bedroom. Oh. And she's lying on the bed. And she's having a conversation with her friend, Pamela. And so Kolchak knocks on the door and Musso is like, a strange man has entered my boudoir. And she tells Kolchak to close the door. There's a draft. And then she asks Kolchak, robbery or rape? And she's like, you know, <laughs> relating everything to her friend on the phone. And Kolchak's like, neither? You, you don't need to get excited. And she <laughs> she's like, poutingly tells her friend, Pamela, he said not to get excited. So this is, you know, <laughs> what she's doing. But Kolchak introduces himself. He's Carl Kolchak with the INS. So Musso tells Pamela, oh, he's a reporter. I'll call you back. And Musso immediately assumes he's there to ask about David Bowie. She's like, everyone wants to know about Bowie and if I'm doing Bowie's house. And Kolchak explains he's not actually there about Bowie. He's there about the Heidecker Museum. 
And she frowns and she's like, that old dump. And Kolchak asks about Mr. Box. And she says, well, with some work, he might make a good village idiot. So I does not like Box, which we got from the other scene anyway. And apparently he talks to the armor and he recites them poetry. And she says, one day she came in and he was waving around a pike and shouting something about cleaving things in twain, whatever that means. And she laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Personality aside, if nothing, she is like full of laughter. She's laughing like all the time. Like when she was talking yeah, I mean, she friend. seems like she could be like a fun person. She's yeah. obviously very horrible to Mr. Boggs, but <laughs> yeah. she might, you know. She's she definitely is, an extrovert. Oh, yeah. She and Updike would get along very well. Oh, well, obviously. Yeah. Although yeah. she would probably put Updike down like repeatedly, I'm sure. Probably, yeah. Everyone does. I mean, that's just kind of what Ron is there for. So. <laughs> Poor Ron. <laughs> I actually like Ron a lot. I don't know. I feel bad for him. So Kolchak says he knows Bog is upset about the remodel. And he wonders if she ever heard him threaten Brewster Hawking. And she doesn't even know who Hawking is. She doesn't work for the museum's owner. She works for the architect. And then Kolchak hears a clanking noise outside. So Kolchak opens the bedroom door to kind of see, because the clanking just kind of gets louder and louder. And so he finally opens the door to see what it is. And as he does... A black knight bursts through the front door, wielding a single blade battle axe. <gasps> so Kolchak like shuts the bedroom door and it doesn't have a lock. So Kolchak is like telling Muso to go get in the bathroom and he pushes the chest of drawers in front of the door. And he crouches and he puts his weight against the drawers to try and like hold the door shut. But the axe bursts through the door. And the knight kicks through the door, pushing aside the drawers, and it knocks Kolchak to the ground and kind of knocks him unconscious. And then he uses the axe to chop through the bathroom door as Muso screams and the night approaches and we see her like in the bathroom screaming and the music rises and then it fades to black. <sighs> so it probably doesn't end well for her. Probably not. Cause then we go to commercial and when we come back, we see the bloody hand of Minerva Muso sticking out from under the sheet, covering her body as it's wheeled out of the apartment. So yeah, didn't go well for Minerva Muso. Roush is there, and he's standing tall in the room, and he's overlooking all the detectives and medical examiners as they watch. He's just kind of like in the middle, like looking at everything. And Kolchak is seated in his chair, and Roush tries to help Kolchak. Roush, you know, Kolchak is he got knocked out, right? So he's like, oh. Mm -hmm. And Roush is like, oh, you know, rub your rub your muscles back here. That'll help, and that kind of stuff. And he's like shining a light kind of on him, like, oh, and you got to be careful with light because when you have a tension headache, and Kolchak's like, tension headache? I didn't get a tension headache. I don't have a tension <laughs> headache. I got knocked out. And then Roush brings the light, like, it's a really bright lamp, and he brings it super close to Kolchak's face. And Kolchak's like, ah! And Roush is like, this is not the third degree. It's the first, if you catch my meaning. He said, neighbors heard screaming, and then they come in, and they find Kolchak in the bedroom, and Minerva Musso axe murdered in the bathroom. And Kolchak is like, nope not nope 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 wasn't you are not i did not have anything to do with this i was knocked out i was a witness and rosh holds the light on him and asks what happened and kolchak's like what stinks and rosh is like you do and then kolchak realized that he's got her perfume that was on top of the drawers mm -hmm. like when it fell a bottle of perfume fell on him and so he's like covered in her perfume mm -hmm. rosh says it's called temptation of adam and it's apparently powerful medicine so it's like, does he think Kolchak did it? We're not really sure what's going on. So then he tells Kolchak that he is a material witness and he knows what Kolchak must be feeling. Confusion. 
persecution, the paranoia that someone may sweep in and steal his story. And Kolchak grabs the lamp and like unscrews the bulb and says, it's not paranoia. It's fact. He's been watching Roush. And for the last two years, he's been resting on his laurels. The long pauses and deep thoughts. He says, Roush isn't thinking. He's sleeping. He says, Roush doesn't investigate things anymore. Police work bores him. And he relies on informants, tips, and ripping off angles from newsmen. Mm. <laughs> Kolchak is not having it. Which So it's not his declining mental faculties. It's actually that he's bored with. Yeah, he's just tired now. of doing the job. Yeah. Yeah. And he's also been like risen up to a certain degree that he probably like has other things he's doing and doesn't really, you know, the job isn't his priority anymore. So Ralph says he wants to know what Kolchak has on these murders. And Kolchak tells him to do his own lane work, calls him a phony and gets up to leave. And Roush grabs him and talks about how awful it would be to spend two weeks in a drab room downtown filling out affidavits and having every inch of his life gone over with a fine-toothed comb. And Kolchak says he saw nothing. And Roush is like, well, I don't want to work this weekend. His wife's chamber music society has a supper concert and he has to write an article for the police newsletter. So he has other stuff to do. Yeah, so police work isn't his priority anymore, basically. And Roush then basically threatens to waterboard Kolchak. I mean, not in that way, but yeah. And I don't know. He tells the other cop to fill the bathtub. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I think he's going to. Yeah, I mean, it's not like waterboarding was invented during the war on terror. So, yeah. Anyway, Kolchak's like, okay, you won't believe me, but Minerva Musso was killed by a knight in armor. And then. (laughs) And then Roush literally lifts Kolchak off the ground by his shoulders and says that Kolchak's previously unreliability does not mean what he's saying now is false. But if he finds out it is, it will have a detrimental effect on how they interface with each other. And so Kolchak kind of smiles nervously. Yeah. So <laughs> Roush is strong. He like totally lifts Kolchak up off yeah. his feet. Yeah. And also threatens to basically waterboard him. Not cool. <laughs> but so at the Heidecker Museum, Boggs is talking to the police and Kolchak is there. And he's basically like, oh, I see this person scurried away and told you that I'd argued with that wretched woman and hurled epithets against her. So he's referring to Kolchak, right? And Kolchak's like, I'm sorry, they fried my eyeballs. You know. And behind them, there's some patrolmen and they're checking all the armor and the axe and the lance and the mace and all this stuff. And they're like, no blood. Everything's clean. And Rausch asks Boggs if he cleaned them recently. And he doesn't mean it was polish. Apparently, the murderer wiped the axe on a silk pillowcase in Russo's room and the lance on Danvers' jacket. And Kolchak is amazed that Roush actually did some like detective work between like his yoga classes and all that kind of stuff. So the officers then are trying to like get Boggs into the armor, like trying to put it on him and like mm-hmm. it doesn't really fit. And he's finally like, oh, and he's like, he gives, he's like, just stop. He's like, it doesn't fit. No one else has a key to the museum. And I have nothing to hide. And so Kolchak's like, it was that armor. Like, they have asked him, are you sure it's that armor? He's like, yes. And that's when they try to put it on Boggs. He's like, it is definitely that armor that I saw. But it wasn't Boggs wearing it. And so Roush decides that maybe Kolchak didn't see the knight. He must have seen the Tin Woodsman who did a little dance for him. And then he says, Kolchak has a history of lies and chicanery to the point of pathology. And then he also says that Kolchak suffers from auto-suggestion. He is enticed by the lure of a big story to the point where he convinced himself that what he believes to be true is true. So then Roush apologized to Boggs 
And he's like, we have to check every lead, even depending on the source it comes from. And he looks at Kolchak disparagingly and says, I guess we need to talk to our criminal psychologist again, looking at Kolchak. And then he and his officers leave. And Kolchak also apologizes to Boggs. He's like, I did see that armor. And so he's asking Boggs, like, who is that Black Cross Knight? Who was he? And Boggs is like, I am not going to tell you anything. You will not get anything else out of me. You don't feel that rats run through my clothes. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. And so that's the end yeah. of that. He's not talking. No. So Kolchak goes into a shop called Coats of Arms and he introduces himself and the male shopkeeper is like, ah, Kolchak, a proud Russian name. And Kolchak's like, oh, actually it's Polish. And the shopkeeper's like, oh, oh, Kolchak, you must be descended from Archbishop Kolchak of Krakow. And the female shopkeeper, it's probably his wife, she runs over to a book and starts to look through it. And the husband like blathers on about Kolchak's proud lineage and Kolchak's like, his grandmother just told him that they were descended from Slavs. And the wife says, oh, no. And they just, you know, basically are talking up his family line. And mm-hmm. the husband's like, don't we have the Kolchak coat of arms in back? So she runs in back to get it. And Kolchak's like, well, I'm not really here for a coat of arms. I need information about a shield. And the shopkeeper, again, is like, well, we're in the business of selling coat of arms. Because obviously, like everyone he talks to <laughs> wants to sell him stuff. And they mostly do mail order. They're very busy. And so he like walks away and Kolchak is like, well, I guess I'm buying a coat of arms. And so, you know, shopkeeper's like, well, you know, you can get a $12 pine plaque. And in the back, we see his wife is like cutting the name off the coat of arms. So like, it's not really a Kolchak one. It's just someone else. And she's just cutting the name off. And so while she's doing that, Kolchak tells him about the Black Knight's shield. And the shopkeeper says, after he talks for a long time about the history of it, that it's a heraldic design of the infamous Metincourt family of Burgundy. And Guy de Metincourt, the last of the line, was particularly awful. He didn't go to the Crusades, but he stayed behind in Burgundy. And he amassed a fortune while he killed women and children in pursuit of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, seems like a real stand-up great guy. Yeah. Great Guy. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's spelt like guy. It's G- yeah. So, yeah. G-U-I. Anyway. Um, Glory. Oh <laughs> my gosh. You're going to have to sit in the shame corner for that one. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so his wife comes out and shows Kolchak the coat of arms, which obviously is not really the Kolchak coat of arms. And she tells him, like, when he receives it, it will come with the name Kolchak below, hand lettered by one of their artists. It has such striking colors. It really deserves a walnut plaque. Only $60. And Kolchak's like, <laughs> no, pine is pine is fine. Um, That's a so big they, jump, too, from pine to walnut. Yeah. From $12 to $60. Whew, man. Yeah. So they keep going on about his limerage, and he's just, like, muttering to himself that he figures he's going to have to shell out for the walnut to get anything else. And then we learn that the Metincourt family had the finest vineyards in Burgundy, but Guy hated human pleasures. He became a pariah in his own time. He consorted with dabblers in the black arts, and he became legendary for his invincibility and his unchivalrous acts. After he killed a foe, it was his custom to wipe the blood from his weapon on the flying colors of the dead foe as a gesture of contempt. 
So, you know, like wiping it on their silk pillow, for example, or Mm -hmm. their coat. So Kolchak pays for his coat of arms and looks through the book. And then he sees a photo of the Black Knight's armor. And he's like, that's him, the Black Knight. So he has identified the culprit. Yeah. I mean, it's not a photo, obviously, because middle ages but it's a it's like a drawing it's right a, a rendering it's actually Sorry. yeah it's actually not it's it's a drawing of armor that does not look anything like the black knight's armor but culture it's is like, vaguely oh, similar <laughs> i mean it's similar as if it's like got metal arms chest and a helmet that doesn't match but anyway yeah, <laughs> yeah it's tv so yeah then we go to commercial and we come back that riveting scene at the Coda's Arms place, which is actually pretty funny, but it goes it on funny, for yeah. quite some time. It does go on for yeah. a while. And they are just total like hucksters, hardcore. It's pretty good. So like dude looks super familiar, but I did not I looked at his stuff and I did not place him from anywhere. So maybe just one of those people they just see everywhere. Anyway. So we come back from a commercial and we're at INS offices and Kolchek is on the phone and he learns that Heidecker Wine and Porters did import wines from Chateau Metancourt. Mm-hmm. So we get another link. In case we needed more links, we got another one. So meanwhile, Vincenzo was looking at Kolchak's notes and he tells Kolchak, he's like, you were assigned to cover the story of Hawking's death in the 20th century. But according to these notes, you are trying to pin the murder on a 12th century night. <laughs> And then he goes on a little bit more and then he tells Kolchik that he watched his sister-in-law have a nervous breakdown and he knows all the signs and all the symptoms and he sees them in Kolchik. So he's really worried about Kolchik. He's like fantasy inability to focus on real issues. And Kolchik is like, just because something sounds strange doesn't mean I need to be like put away from my own safety. Gita Metincor had a pseudo armor crafted for him by a necromancer that made him invincible. So yeah, you know, <laughs> Yeah, that's total normal stuff that people say all the time. Vincenzo's like, see what I mean? Fantasy. You come in here rambling about some blessed battle axe and Pope Gregory and smelling like a vase full of dead begonias. Because apparently Coltec still smells from mm-hmm. Russo's perfume. Yeah, I mean, that shit is potent. Yeah, because Boggs mentioned it too when he's talking to Boggs of like how he stinks. Although the coats of arms people didn't seem to care because I guess as long as that money spent, they don't care what it smells like. So... Vincenzo is like in full intervention mode and is like, what's happening with your life? And Carl's like, the armor and battle axe are both at the museum. Pope Gregory blessed the battle axe and asked the Knight of Strasbourg to do battle with Metincourt. The holy axe was the only thing that could pierce Metincourt's armor, and it did. Metincourt died, but he swore with his last breath that music and human gaiety would never be permitted around his resting place. He was a misanthrope. I kind of get Betancourt. I'm starting to sympathize with our villain. Anyway, <laughs> Brewster Hawking and Minerva Musa were both part of the plan to turn the Heidecker Museum into a medieval steak and lobster discotheque. So not exactly, um, you know, the kind of thing that someone like Metancourt would probably approve of. So then Vincenzo asked about Leo Ramutka. And Kolchek says that the Heidecker Museum is too old to be remodeled because it's below building codes. But Ramuka was interceding with the building department to get a variance for them. Mm. So he's part of it. And Rolf Danvers mm-hmm. owned the lot next door to the museum. Parking, Tony. Parking. A discotheque is going to need parking. So he's got it all lined up. Right. It all fits. Exactly. But Vincenzo tries to get Kolchak to come and lie down and rest and take a shower and clean himself up. 
But Kolchak is like, nope. And he walks to the door, his arm around Vincenzo. He's telling the story. I'm going to bring back the most amazing story you've ever heard. And you're going to wear your fingers down to the bone, trying to type it into the wire. And Vincenzo's just like, please, just like stay here. Like, have dinner with me. I'll buy. And Kolchak's like, buy? If you lost your mind, you never buy. And then he heads <laughs> out the door. And then Vincenzo's like, it's my sister-in-law all over again. Maybe I'm to blame. Maybe I'm too hard on Kolchak. <laughs> And you feel super bad for Vincenzo. He's like, oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, he actually is legitimately worried about him and he feels bad. I mean, he is like wearing clothes from the night before. He smells like perfume. He's like all messed up and he's talking about black magic and necromancy. I mean, I get it. Yeah. (laughs) So Kolchak breaks into the museum through a window and inside he looks at the giant battle axe that was blessed by Pope Gregory the Ninth. And then he walks around and the black knight armor on display is missing. So it's not (gasps) where it was. Huh. So Kolchak takes some photos and then he hears a clanking noise. So he like ducks around the corner and he sees the black knight coming down the stairwell and the knight starts to pass by his location. And of course, Kolchak remembers like, oh God, I reek, right? So then he's trying to cover his shirt and stuff so that the smell (laughs) doesn't give him away. And the knight passes by his location and makes his way towards his display corner. So maybe it's coming back. And then Kolchak snaps a few photos of the knight as it begins to climb back onto the display. And of course, that alerts the knight to his presence. So the knight grabs a spear from the display and Kolchak runs. And fortunately, the spear misses and it sticks into a door. So it like flies past him and Whew. gets lodged in the wood. So then the knight grabs a sword from the display. And so Kolchak runs over to another suit of armor and he tries to pull the sword free from the armor, but he can't get it out. So there's a table between himself and the knight. And then the knight cleaves the table in two with the sword. (gasps) And Kolchak runs and he falls down the small section of stairs and he pushes a suit of armor at the knight. And Kolchak then smashes the display where the blessed battle axe is like kept. And like he uses a mace to smash it open. An actual mace this time. Yeah. And he tries to lift the huge axe and the Black Knight backs away. But then Kolchak pulls the axe from the display and the axe head falls to the floor. It's like just too heavy for Kolchak to lift. It's a huge freaking axe. It's giant. Yeah, it's big and it's obviously very heavy. So the Black Knight approaches and Kolchak manages a very clumsy swing and it bounces against the armor, doesn't really hit him head on, but it does seem to be enough to cause the Black Knight to stumble backwards against the wall. So Kolchak turns the axe so the blade faces the ground, and the Black Knight stumbles forward and falls, and he lands on the axe's flute. <gasps> He's done. And then it's commercial. Yeah, again, it's a huge, like the axe handle, I think, is probably longer than Kolchak is tall. It is gigantic. Right. And the blade is gigantic. It's Yeah, it's massive. Yeah. The pointy blade on the back of the axe is either called a fluke or a pike. But when it's called a pike, it's actually more like a spike. And this is more of like a pointy blade. Mm -hmm. If this was a pole axe, which it's technically not, even though it's gigantic, it would be called a bec de facon. But a bec de facon is also a type of pole weapon that looks like a hammer on one side and a knife on the other. There's a spike on both ends. So, like, there aren't any of these in the Transformers. Like, Optimus Prime had an Energon axe, but it's basically just an axe. So, I don't know. It's a fluke, man. <laughs> fluke, man. Anyway, <laughs> I see what you did there. I couldn't resist. 
So we come back from the commercial and it's another atypical ending. Kolchak's voiceover is not him talking into his recorder. It's mm-hmm. actually like really a voiceover. It's a direct continuation of the last scene rather than Yeah, no, opening. he's still hanging out with the armor. Yeah, right? he's, he's the yeah, the armor is laying on the axe, like impaled by the fluke. And Kolchak kind of like jostles the axe handle a little bit and like the armor's helmet falls off. And then we get his voiceover, which is a blessed battle axe and an iron suit full of thin air. I knew I'd have a lot of explaining to do to the owners of the Heidecker Museum, to Captain Vernon Rausch, and of course, to my own beloved bureau chief, A. Vincenzo. There wouldn't be much I could tell them except what I'll tell you. It all really happened. And then, like, he picks up the empty helmet and, like, looks at it and then, like, sets it down and you see his face. It's like, (laughs) and then it goes to black and then we get the end credit sequence. Yep. Yep. Don't know how you're going to explain that. Yep. Destroyed a suit of armor. Just destroyed his. Well, I don't know if he destroyed. I mean, it's got a puncture mark in it, but I don't know if he destroyed it. But ooh, if they repair the armor, will that like reenact the black magic? And then the night will still be walking around trying to kill people if they try to turn mm. it into a discotheque. Probably not. I don't know. They've t- apparently they've taken some of the old armor. We learned from Boggs at one point. They've already removed some of the old armor and gone to paint it for the restaurant. Like they're just like taking like artifacts and just paint them fancy colors for the disco and just <laughs> so maybe that's what this yeah. made us look at. end up with a black knight he's gonna be painted like pink or something Who knows? yeah hot pink knight yeah. yeah hot pink knight neon yeah. green knight yeah Ooh, green knight mm-hmm. so we were originally doing cold check episodes and then i was like hey let's do scooby-doo and obviously everyone who listens to this podcast this patreon exclusive podcast knows that we've already done scooby-doo and so we started doing scooby-doo before we finished cold check because i really wanted you to see the very first episode of scooby-doo where are you because what was the title of that episode what a night for a night and it has a black knight that's going around is yeah yeah the black knight is actually really common it's kind of like a common media trope but like yeah in that in that case, they think it's a haunted suit of armor, and it turns out it's just a guy wearing the armor trying to scare people away. But is it really? But in this one, it actually is a haunted suit of armor. Yeah, although Scooby-Doo is actually supposedly the curator of the museum. Coincidence again. And let's let's be honest, Scooby-Doo, the curator is like a little short fat dude, and like he's not fitting in that armor. So <laughs> I'm not really sure it was him. I think he might have been set up. It might have actually been Professor Hyde White the whole time. And he set the curator up so he wouldn't have to deal with him anymore and like drugged him and then put him in the suit of armor so Scooby and the gang would catch him. But, That's possible. Yeah. Or it could have actually been like a real night because, you know, how did the night get in the truck and the crate at the train station? It's very confusing. It's all <laughs> stuff we left out of the Scooby episode because I was saving it and actually hadn't thought of it yet. But yes. So some Scooby-Doo connection on this episode. So, <laughs> this episode, when I was looking ahead at the episodes, this is actually what spurred me that, like, no, we need to do Scooby-Doo. So if you like the <laughs> Scooby-Doo episodes, you can thank Colcheck for the Scooby-Doo episodes, even though Colcheck happened after Scooby-Doo. So Yeah. It's all out of order. Who yeah. knows what's happening? What day is it? What's going on? I don't know. Yeah, we haven't actually even finished Scooby-Doo yet. We're on episode, like, 11. Yeah. So. We're just all over the place. Yeah. It's cool. So, Torre, <laughs> what did you think of the nightly murders? Um, 
I thought that I would not try to turn a museum into a chain restaurant and discotheque. Oh, okay. I feel like it's going to be like a medieval Applebee's and the food is not oh. really very good. Okay. So you would turn it into something, but not a disco. Okay. Gotcha. Not, not something bad like so that. So you're still going like to capitalism on this, but okay. Gotcha. I mean, <laughs> look, I live in capitalism. Sometimes I have to use it to my advantage. <laughs> That's just how it is. Don't love it. <laughs> it's not my favorite. If we could just all have some social programs and not have to worry about paying rent every second, that would be ideal, but that's not the world we live in. Yeah. I mean, it's a good episode. I thought it was entertaining. I really, I do love the whole, like it had some really funny stuff. Cause it had like the people with the coat of arms. It had Rosh who's just kind of like off in his own world. It had Vincenzo being like legitimately concerned for Carl's health, which was funny. I thought it was solid. Like, it was entertaining. It was fun. I did think it was funny that, like, I don't know. I feel like the night murders were a little funny. And I feel like murders shouldn't be funny. But just the way that they <laughs> happened, they were just a little bit, like, a little silly, I guess, is the word I'm thinking of. But that's just because, I don't know, it's kind of silly to be killed by a night, right? I feel like this is probably a solid six. Okay. Yeah, it was entertaining. It was fun. It was, you know. It all made sense. It all came together. I feel like they didn't try to do too much. Like sometimes they get, you know, into things and it gets to be a little bit too convoluted. I thought this was pretty straightforward. Yeah, there wasn't any. I mean, we mentioned that last episode. There was that one thing where, like, you know, they find the evidence and culture goes, what's that? And they never go back to it. We don't know what it is. Whatever. Right. It was probably like, you know, a bead or something. That had to do with like Aztec costumes or something. Yeah. But they never go back to it. There wasn't anything here that I think there was some stuff that seemed super red herring that I actually had to go back and add into the notes. I'm like, oh, crap, they're going to bring that up. Okay, so I had to go back and put stuff in the notes. These notes were a little confusing because I had to keep going back and adding stuff that I was trying to cut down when I was trying to make them trimmer. (laughs) So, but yeah, they don't seem to have anything that doesn't, they maybe do a little, like we don't need that many links, but they do like to make sure everything's tied up, like the whole like the wine importing, like we don't need it at that point. We know the soda pop company owns the place, so we don't really need the wine thing, but they add that in there too. But there's nothing that they like forget about, which sometimes happens in these shows where they like bring you all these things and then they never come back to it. So I'm going to go much like last episode. I think I'm going to go one higher than you. I think I'm going to go with a seven. Okay. Yeah. So six and a seven. Again, if we want to split the difference, six and a half. So. Yeah. 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 Yeah, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so as we go, we only have two more episodes to go. And right now, we both, our mode for these episodes, so the, the number we use most, both of our modes are seven. So oh, wow. Okay. Kolchak's doing pretty good. Yeah. So both our averages are actually less than seven, which is interesting because our average is less than seven, but the number that we have used the most is seven. I could see that. Too much. It's probably not going to change too much. There's only two more episodes. I can't skew. Unless right, we, unless they're uh, really bad. Which unless they're really bad or, <laughs> I mean, super, super good could also maybe move it, but not as much as if they were super bad. Yeah, I but, feel like if, they were, if they're super bad, then that's going to take it yeah. a little, but we'll see. There's only two left, so it doesn't feel like a lot of time for them to totally. No, and I mean, there's only the two left. The series was supposed to go to 26 episodes, so it's not like we're getting like a clean close to the show it was abruptly canceled and they were like unproduced scripts so yeah we're not gonna gonna get like a nice like closure no so sorry 
me ruin it ahead of time. So, but yeah, crazy times, which is why we need to go because huh. it's crazy. Yeah, we got other stuff to do. Yeah, we got to do more Patreon content for you. Leave us alone. You're overstaying your welcome. Okay. Yeah, it's been just, fun. Go. We yeah. got to grab stuff to do. <laughs> Later. Bye. <laughs> Get out of my house. <laughs> I'm sorry. Come back. I didn't mean Story that. I'll make you some the tea. Rails. This is what happens when I drink too much caffeine and sugar. <laughs> it's Pepsi's fault. Blame Pepsi. <laughs> All righty. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> Oh dear, getting a little loopy. All right. I want to rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. Hashtag really just a bedroom closet. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we rewatch episode 19 of Cole Check the Night Stalker, The Youth Killer. And try to figure out if the, the truth, truth is, is still out there. there. to the summary so hopefully you hadn't read it and memorized it by now because um, <laughs> i changed it anyway okay so i memorized it and i told 40 of my people oh well i guess i'm about to kill all of them okay sorry oh. the town of everett washington you are, <laughs> anyway. yeah it's no big loss <laughs> <laughs> all righty okay so i guess it's me i start hold on i got bread in my mouth oh okay Okay. Sorry. I had to shove some peanut butter in my face. Coming back with bread in your mouth. <laughs>